You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 34. This is a continuation of the subject matter that we discussed in episode 33, forgiveness ritual from altar to baptism. And this is part two, as I say, why does God change the forgiveness ritual from an altar offering to a baptism and then back to an altar again in the coming kingdom? There are four divinely appointed angels with separate laws and rituals. They each have a specific educational focus that is progressive, pointing to our answer. So let's investigate. We have a question in relation to the divine principle of forgiveness that we've been addressing. Uh, This question is why did God shift the forgiveness ritual in the last divine dispensation from an often repeated animal altar offering for the sin offering during that first kingdom age to the ritual of baptism during the ecclesial age that's only performed once and then in in the subsequent um, restored kingdom age there will be a return to that repeated animal altar offering for sin forgiveness that will be in the millennial kingdom age Uh, the answer requires ascending several platforms of understandings. This isn't the kind of question that can be answered quickly or simply with a single verse, uh, at least if we want the truth of the matter. We began to address these understanding platforms in our previous considerations. First, we determined that the motivation for God restoring kingdom law, what many refer to as the love of Moses, Uh, was expressed as being for the sake of God's righteousness. Within the context of a detailed prophecy of the approaching kingdom of God, we're told that he will magnify the law and make it honorable for his righteousness' sake. Therefore, this forgiveness ritual transition from the animal sin offering to baptism and then back to the animal sin offering is going to have to illuminate features of our Creator's righteousness. Secondly, we recognized that all correct understandings about God's testimony and His changing educational models have to fit within the absolute foundational principle of God manifestation, which is multitudinous singularity, which can be expressed simply as harmony. All of God's testimony has to blend together perfectly, or we do not understand the testimony correctly. We are are not free to dismiss any part of God's testimony as inconsequential in our considerations, as that's going to prompt inappropriate presumptions and automatically imbalance our understandings about God's righteousness. That oversimplification path is the standard thought process of the serpent frame of reference, indicating an uncircumcised heart. 
The second reasoning platform is that everything in our Creator's testimony has to fit together perfectly and harmoniously. The third understanding platform was recognizing how that principle of multitudinous singularity is promoted in the laws of that first kingdom of God that were de delivered by Moses. We noted the extreme level of cross-identification within the terms of the physical components and the rituals mandated in that kingdom law. The point was that everything in the law was expressed as being dependent on everything else in the law. One point that should be added to this understanding is that a great purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster that would deliver us to our Messiah. We read this in Galatians chapter 3, where for the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law served as an educator. Despite the fact that the law was not imposed on the enlightened community during the ecclesial age, scripture makes it perfectly clear the educational properties of kingdom law have not been exhausted. In the restored kingdom over which Jesus Christ will reign as both king and high priest, it will not be the purpose of that restored law to deliver us to Jesus Christ. The purpose will be to educate mankind in the framework of understanding the righteousness of God, as God will magnify the law and make it honorable for the sake of his righteousness. Therefore, the third platform in our ascent to understanding these forgiveness ritual changes is to recognize there is more to learn from the law than was necessary to bring the enlightened community to the educational stage of the ecclesial age, and that this will have to blend perfectly with all other lessons. The fourth platform was recognizing the four progressive educational stages in our Creator's plan. These are referred to in God's testimony as ages. An age is defined, bordered by how God changes the spiritual educational model when a new age begins. As we noted, a new age begins when there's a change in the priesthood and a change in divine law. These changes, which are always uncomfortable to the enlightened community during each of the transition generations are always validated <clears throat> by an increasingly greater, very public demonstration of God's miraculous power. Therefore, it's quite simple to define the four divinely appointed dispensations in the Creator's plan. The first would be the patriarchal age uh, that had a priesthood structure where the heads of the household acted as the chief priest, educating the family in the laws of God, offering sacrifices, building altars, uh, judging the enlightened community. This included Adam, Noah, Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Um, but at Sinai, God dramatically changed the priesthood structure and introduced many new laws that addressed worship procedures, civil actions, military rules, agricultural laws, and the physical national center of the tabernacle. 
This was the first kingdom age. There is a two-stage spiritual service model initiated with the priests and the Levites. The mandated changes to confirm this separate first kingdom age with its new educational focus were validated by many powerful outpourings of divine power. The ecclesial age began following the death and resurrection of our Messiah. The temple priesthood model was replaced with a new priesthood. However, like the previous two priesthood structures, the priests are still defined as being the sons of the chief or high priest. Those baptized into Christ are repeatedly defined as his children. Similar to the previous dispensation, there are also two spiritual labor layers of service with separate worship assignments that are defined by gender. The brethren in Christ serve in the priestly leadership role and the sisters in Christ serve in the support Levite role. This divinely appointed age with its new educational focus was validated by an even greater degree of public divine power. One man was immortalized. Believers were awarded God's miraculous power to use in promoting this new educational model in the plan of God. The fourth divine age is about to begin. This will be the restored kingdom age. This can also be defined as the millennial kingdom as it will last a thousand years. Matthew's gospel refer, re, repeatedly refers to this as the kingdom of heaven. In other words, defining the source and the nature of that kingdom. There will certainly be yet another change in the divinely appointed priesthood and a change in divine laws and rituals. Just like the previous two dispensations, there will be two layers in the spiritual service model. There will be immortal priests and there will be mortal priests. This transition into the fourth divine educational dispensation will see the greatest of all level of public manifestations of divine power to validate these changes. Many people will be immortalized. This will be the, the latter rains outpouring of the Holy Spirit power. There will be extreme geological changes and military defeats that lead to a single worldwide government centered at Jerusalem as well as agricultural, medical, and biological changes that will all confirm the validity of these changes in the educational model for this approaching age. So, the point is that God introduces new educational models at these four points in his plan, a plan that was completely determined before the first of the six evenings and mornings of creation. As we have noted in the past, we teach our children in a similar manner to this, maintaining the same principles through their entire developing life, but using different teaching methods. With each progressive stage, from baby to toddler to adolescent to teenager to young adult, how successful would a father and mother's educational efforts be if they tried to teach their teenager with the same procedures they used when he or she was a baby. In the same sense, God is spiritually educating the bride of his son, as the Creator declared on that sixth 
day of creation. It is not good that man should be alone. This was the foundational purpose why forgiveness is a legitimate divine principle. If God did not offer forgiveness, Jesus would be all alone in the whole world when death is finally eliminated. God is educating the enlightened community, specifically those within the enlightened community, who will become saints. We know perfectly well that that isn't going to be all of the enlightened community, as Jesus repeatedly warns us during his ministry, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and great surprises at the judgment. So we have four separate stages in the maturing spiritual education of those who will be saints, including people like Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, David, Elijah, and hopefully you and I. I would suggest there is a rotating educational theme to these four maturing stages. There is a primary, but certainly not exclusive, educational focus to each of these four ages. Now we can use the very clear scriptural definition of the divinely intended educational theme of the first kingdom age, that second dispensation, to lead us to the intended educational focus of each of these four divine dispensations. We've noted this issue previously as this, is a, as this has been helpful in a number of issues in relation to understanding God's righteousness. The educational focus for kingdom law was sin, but not simply sin, actually transgressional sin. Now let's also respect the fact that every separate divine dispensation embraces all the features of God's righteousness. However, there are definitely varying degrees of significance between those principles um, over those four ages. God, uh, grace and imputed righteousness are certainly components of kingdom law, but they were very subtly presented. As most of the ecclesial age, when grace, forgiveness, and imputed righteousness became the strong focus, judgment and consequences for sin are also issues addressed during the ecclesial age, but they are more subtly presented. We have to respect God's principles are eternal, even though his educational models are only temporary. So, Romans 3 and 20, just to review this um, uh, stated educational focus about God's law, kingdom law. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Well, this is abundantly clear. If we want to know about sin, the law, kingdom law, God's law, is the great educator. Uh, in Romans 5 and verse 20, we read, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Well, this adds emphasis to the educational assignment of kingdom law that it magnified sin. Sin couldn't hide in the dark recesses of our minds and hearts because kingdom law acted like a spotlight and a magnifying glass that the offense might abound. 
and we come to Romans 7 in Paul's reasoning <clears throat> it says what shall we say then is the law sin by no means nay I had not known sin but by the law and then dropping down to verse 11 for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good was then that which is good made death unto me by no means but sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful well, Paul, Paul makes it perfectly clear that without the law we could not understand sin correctly if Paul didn't know the law he would not know sin Paul reasons that simply because the law defines and highlights sin we're not free to define the laws of the kingdom of God those laws of Moses as, as uh, referenced as being unholy or equivalent to sin that law is holy and just and good and as we read in Isaiah 42, God will magnify that law again and make it honorable for the sake of his righteousness. The purpose of the law was to teach about not only what constituted sin, but the active working of sin. This is why Paul said that sin was actively working in him, working death in the Apostle Paul. This is that Diabolos effect that we have noted before. The law shows the process of how sin works death in us by those commandments. Sin becomes exceedingly sinful. Paul expresses the same understanding of, of the foundational purpose of kingdom law being transgressional sin when he says to the Galatians in chapter 3 wherefore then serveth the law it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made it's very safe to understand that the intended focus of kingdom law was transgressional sin all the features of God's righteousness can certainly be seen in those laws and rituals of that second dispensation. But clearly transgressional sin was the powerful focus for that divine dispensation. And that focus changed when the next divine dispensation began. In the ecclesial age, we see a very different focus. Again, all the components of God's righteousness are still there, but the emphasis shifted to imputed righteousness on the basis of faith. That personal righteousness that had been so emphasized in the patriarchal age and the first kingdom age was not the primary emphasis of the laws and rituals of the ecclesial age. In fact, Jesus chooses a law scholar to be the apostle to pursue Gentile believers in the ecclesial age. Uh, Peter was certainly the apostle Jesus appointed to use one of those keys to the kingdom of heaven that he was given 
used at the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, to officially invite the Gentiles to participate in the offer of salvation. As, as a side note, personally, I think Cornelius was the same centurion previously posted at Capernaum, whose servant Jesus had healed. And Jesus had declared that he had not witnessed the level of faith expressed by that centurion in all the enlightened community. This is still an educated guess, and therefore not definitive. But whatever the case, it was Peter who Jesus chose to officially invite Gentiles to participate in the salvation process, but it was Paul, the law scholar, kingdom law scholar, who Jesus chose to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Just as in the approaching restored kingdom age, the law will educate and the immortalized saints will be the educators of that law to the unenlightened throughout the world. As we've noted in the past, the great danger in these educational shifts in our Heavenly Father's maturing policies for the bride of his son can be dangerously oversimplified. Since imputed righteousness is such a powerful emphasis at this stage, it's sometimes, well, actually it's more like often, assumed that personal righteousness, uh, personal righteousness as opposed to imputed righteousness, is illegitimate. That the imputed righteousness awarded on the basis of faith is all that is needed for salvation. This is the heart-generated presumption that eventually leads, if uncorrected, to the false doctrine of instant guaranteed salvation that's so prevalent in paganized Christianity. Personal righteousness was the emphasis, the divine educational emphasis, during the patriarchal age. The reason Noah was chosen by God to save mankind was that Noah was a just man and described as perfect in his generations. The Hebrew term translated as perfect is tamim, and is predominantly translated without blemish, upright, and without spot. God declares Noah to be righteous. In Genesis chapter 7, we read, The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee, for you, have I seen righteous before me in this generation. So we see both categories of righteousness being highlighted in this same verse. God declares Noah to be righteous before him. Not righteous because of some extended righteousness due to faith, but because Noah was spiritually mature, without spot, and just before God. However, God invites Noah to save his household in the ark. They are saved on the basis of Noah's righteousness before God. This personal righteousness of Noah is confirmed by God in Ezekiel chapter 14, where we, uh, the verse we've reviewed before in this series, it says, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. And although Noah was able to deliver his wife and sons and daughters in the flood, his righteousness could, not, could have no extended value to the rest of the enlightened community at that point. 
historical point between the two deportations of Jerusalem uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. Noah's personal righteousness, his personal demonstrations of God's rightness in his words and actions, his lifestyle, behavior, would be a vehicle of salvation for Noah. And of course, Job and, and Daniel but would not be extended to anyone else in such a corrupt environment, behavioral environment, uh, absence of personal righteousness environment of the enlightened community as existed at that particular time. Job is also emphasized in this patriarchal age as being a man with personal righteousness. Job is described in the very first verse of the first chapter as being perfect and upright which means undefiled and righteous. The Hebrew word translated upright is yeshar, which is predominantly translated right, upright and righteous. And of course, Job, like Noah, is identified by God through Ezekiel as a man with the personal righteousness to save only himself, if he had been part of Ezekiel's generation. Abraham was also a righteous man, it wasn't unproven faith that identified the righteousness of Abraham. It was the fact that he proved his faith with actions that demonstrated the faith of Abraham that assigned that righteousness to him personally. This issue highlights how it is personal righteousness that affords the gift of imputed righteousness. James also emphasizes this issue in chapter 2 when he addresses uh, the issue of a living faith as opposed to a dead faith. A dead faith uh, is defined by the absence of works, absence of uh, personal righteousness, and an exclusive dependence on imputed righteousness. A living faith is defined by those works and deeds that will be the very basis of Christ's judgment for each of us. Lot was also defined as a righteous man. We read in, in Peter's second letter, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy behavior conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, Lot was vexed by the uh, descending behavioral standards of the hundreds of Christadelphians that accompanied him to Sodom. And this was not Sodomites that he didn't expect godly behavior from. But this destruction was a sample for those that should... Uh, after this, live ungodly, but know how to live godly, but don't. This was, uh, destruction was because of the behavioral failures of the enlightened community that accompanied Lot um, to Sodom. Abram knew his nephew to be a righteous man. This is why Abram asks the angel, telling him about the impending destruction at Sodom in Genesis 18. We read, and Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? A pronounced educational issue in relation to the terms of God's righteousness during the patriarchal age was personal 
righteousness. This was also a strong educational feature of the first kingdom age and the required performance of kingdom law. But in the ecclesial age, that emphasis shifted away from the works of the law and from that personal righteousness demonstrated by Abel, Abel Noah, Job, Abraham, Joseph, to the significance of faith, grace, and imputed righteousness. The extreme danger to the enlightened community at this time is to make the exact opposite mistake as the enlightened community in the previous dispensation, to ignore the principle of God manifestation, multitudinous singularity, by presuming that the new divine educational focus is to be considered exclusive, that only forgiveness should be pursued without judgment, that only faith is necessary for salvation without works, that imputed righteousness saves without the need for personal righteousness, that we don't need God's sin textbook, kingdom law, just to understand sin. So, we have this rotating primary educational focus pattern in these four divine dispensations. When God's educational pattern, that model, changes quite significantly. Uh, in the patriarchal age, the focus is on personal righteousness. While this is also a significant issue in the next dispensation, the first kingdom age, it is the primary educational focus of transgressional sin that makes it very clear that personal righteousness that was highlighted in the previous patriarchal age is insufficient for our salvation. As Paul declared, the law was a schoolmaster to deliver us to Christ. The law taught that we could not save ourselves. The third divine age, our, our current, but soon to be concluded, ecclesial age, now emphasizes imputed righteousness, that since personal righteousness cannot save us, but that the righteousness of Jesus can be extended to us to make up for the imperfection in our personal dedication to God. Additionally, while judgment for sin was emphasized in the previous dispensation, with, with its many death sentences for a variety of ungodly behaviors, grace and forgiveness are also emphasized in God's uh, ecclesial age educational model. So, what about the next divine dispensation? What will be the educational emphasis of the restored kingdom age, the millennial kingdom, the second kingdom age, and, and the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew repeatedly defines the kingdom? Let's look at that, that this emphasis rotation Patriarchal age, personal righteousness. First kingdom age, transgressional sin. Third, uh, divine dispensation, ecclesial age, imputed righteousness. This pattern would suggest the next divine educational focus should be related to sin. The other category of sin that's left as a possibility is the uncleanness of sin nature. This is the issue that's been at the center of pretty much every fellowship separation in our history over the last 150 years, beginning with the renunciationists who rejected the understanding that Jesus was born with 
sinkers flesh that needed cleansing, this is still a challenge in the enlightened community today. As a number of highly respected teachers and authors in our community insist that there's only one category of sin, and that is transgressional sin exclusively. And that corruption of God's righteousness completely eliminates the validity of our Messiah's sacrifice as a demonstration of God's righteousness. This incomplete understanding of sin dissolves the educational purpose of our baptism ritual. Now, this second separate sin category was certainly addressed in the previous First Kingdom Age, but it was not the primary educational focus. We've noticed in the past that there were six separate sin offerings for transgressional sin, for which repentance was required, but that there were also six separate sin offerings for divinely unclean conditions that required no repentance whatsoever, just a divinely mandated cleansing that was accomplished through one or more sin offerings. Now this issue of the uncleanness of sin nature will be quite evident in the difference between the immortal priest kings of this restored kingdom age and the mortals being enlightened in this fourth divine dispensation. One nature is holy and the other is not holy, but hopefully pursuing that holiness, that divine acceptability status. Just like righteousness and sin, holiness also has two avenues of pursuit. One is behavioral, that the enlightened are supposed to behave in a godlike manner in order to be holy as he is holy. Secondly, there is a physical standard of holiness that was also addressed in the laws and rituals of the first kingdom age and will be emphasized in the second kingdom age. This educational focus was referenced in the dietary laws of the enlightened, uh, what the enlightened could and could not eat. The stated intention was to pursue a physical holiness. In Leviticus 11, we read, For I am the Lord your God, and you shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping things that creepeth upon the earth, for I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the beasts and the fowl and of every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature that creeps upon the earth to make a difference between the unclean and the clean and between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. Now it should be understood that the societal presumptions of this current generation absolutely oppose this understanding of a physical or or even behavioral holiness. The highlighting of any kind of physical challenge uh, currently is, is societal poison, even illegal in some applications. There are uh, the American Disability Act uh, compliance requirements and access laws to accommodate physical challenges. There are 
employment laws and construction laws related to respecting the divine principle, uh, disrespecting, or say, their employment laws and construction laws related to disrespecting the divine principle of holiness, which is not a, a, an educational requirement of the ecclesial age, but will be in the restored kingdom age. If anyone tried to suggest a law requiring anyone touching a dead body to be societally expelled for seven days until two sin offering uh, participations were completed, such a suggestion would be considered insulting and repugnant. We now have laws ensuring the protection of behavioral patterns that constitute an abomination to our creator, such as respecting gender preferences as opposed to physical realities and same-sex marriages and the prosecution of parents who, who dare to physically discipline their children in a godlike manner, for just a few examples. The laws and rituals of the first kingdom of God are considered morally wrong in our current society, requiring physical flawlessness and a single gender for priests attending the tabernacle and the altar of the burnt offering. No women were allowed to serve as priests, and no one from any tribe but Levi or anyone but the sons of Aaron. The age of maturity for the priest appointment was 30, not 18 or, or 21. They were not allowed to serve beyond 50 years old. It made no difference how capable they were to be a priest at either 29 years old or 51 years old. This was an age-mandated retirement required by God, which is a concept that is absolutely despised in our society today. The terms of God's righteousness are definitely not respected in the society of societies of the sons of men today. That will have to change, and it's not going to be done with legislation or voting or financial rewards or even preaching. That incredible paradigm shift will be the result of a degree of violence that will generate the necessary fear of God that will encourage new understandings. Uh, we're going to have to continue our, um, these considerations in our next class as time has, our time has expired. And that will be in next week in class 35. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt. F 
at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.